Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Michelle Leslie. And I'm Amy Spreeman. Hey, Michelle, how long has it been since we've dedicated an entire episode to answering listeners' questions? I can't remember. It's been a while. Well, Amy, yeah, it has, and I am glad you asked. It's time for another stellar night of hearing from our listeners and answering their insightful questions. Yes, we received some great questions from several of you on our social media pages, and we always put out the call for questions on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. So if you you want to submit a question for a future Glad You Asked episode, hey, don't wait for us to ask. Just go ahead and do that and make sure that you are following us on one of those platforms. Stop by our website to awordfitlyspoken.life to get the direct links for each of our social media pages. Yeah, please do that. All right, well, let's get the ball rolling with uh, this two-for-one combo question from a private message to my Instagram page and then another to our Award Fitly Spoken Instagram pages. These two questions are really similar, so I've kind of lumped them together. So the first question is this. A good friend recently asked me to invite the ladies at my church to come to a Priscilla Schreier uh, simulcast at her church. I did not quite know how to respond to her, but I'm not going to endorse or promote Ms. Schreier. Do you have any advice for me on how to handle these situations? And then here's the second question. How do you handle unbiblical talk or promoting unbiblical material? And here she listed several false teachers and several false doctrines right here. So how do you handle that with brothers and sisters in Christ, especially at my local church, without coming off as the, quote, Christian legalistic police? (laughs) We've all been there, haven't we? Yep. Okay. Well, first of all, for our listeners who have never heard of Priscilla Schreier and don't know why she's a false teacher, we've got a link in the show notes for you with lots of details. But the short answer is, you know, it's all the usual suspects. She teaches false doctrine, she preaches to men, and she yokes with other false teachers. All right. So I think that I can best answer this question if Amy and I role play it. So Amy, would you be my lovely assistant and ask me to extend this invitation at my church? Well, of course I will. Do you want me to try to do one of your Southern accents or should I just stick with my Northern accent? (laughs) You do what you do best. (laughs) Oh, oh, okay. Okay, Michelle. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, Michelle, will you please invite the ladies of your church to the Priscilla Shire simulcast at my church? I would really love to see you there. And I, I know it would mean a lot coming from you. Well, Amy, You know that I love you, and I would love to be able to help out. But unfortunately, Priscilla Schreier is a false teacher, so I'm afraid I can't invite the ladies of my church. What? What do you mean she's a false teacher? How dare you? That's really judgy of you, Miss Judgy McJudgy Pants. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. I I really needed that laugh today, though. That was great. Me too. Well, Amy, she teaches false doctrine, preaches to men, and yokes with other false teachers. You know, I'd be happy to email you some information if you'd like. Now, email, ladies. Don't try to verbally explain it to her right then if she's huffy. She is not going to hear it, and the situation is just going to escalate. So she teaches false doctrine, preaches to men, and yokes with other false teachers. I would be happy to email you some information if you'd like. 
Ugh, I don't think so. Wow. I, I, no, thank you. You know, she's a wonderful teacher. She's just so sweet and kind and humble. You know, I, I just can't believe this is coming from you. Well, okay. If, you know, if you ever change your mind, just let me know. I'll see you at the kids' soccer game next week. Okay. Something <laughs> like that. You know, just don't let her get yeah. to you. Turn the other cheek. It may not feel like it, but you have sufficiently warned this person and you've left the door of communication open in case the Lord opens her eyes. First Peter 3, 9 tells us this. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Okay, now that's the most likely response you're going to get. Most people who are into false teachers are unfortunately, foundationally into idolatry. That's the root cause of turning to false teachers. When you have a chance, read Judges 6, 25 through 32. That's Judges 6, 25 through 32. What you'll see there is sort of the same idea behind, you know, what's going on with the responses that you get that are angry when you try to tell somebody that their favorite teacher is a false teacher. However, even though it's much more rare Sometimes you'll get a response like this, and I I hope the response that you get when you tell your friend that Priscilla Schreier is a false teacher is more like this. Oh, no. Really? I'm so sorry to hear that. Wow. I've tried to be so discerning, but just tell me, can you help me understand why you think she's a false teacher? You know, Amy, I know it upsets me too. Um, And especially when I learned that she was a false teacher, it upset me. Basically, she teaches false doctrine, preaches to men and yokes with other false teachers. I'd be happy to email you some information if you'd like. And then send her something like the the link to my article on Priscilla Schreier that's in the show notes, something she can take her time looking at in the privacy of her own home, you know, and, and take her time to understand it. And maybe even something that she can share with other people that uh, she wants to, to share the idea that this is a false teacher with. Uh, now, these are basically the same responses that you're going to give in the scenario of question number two. You know, what do I do when the conversation among friends at church turns to false teachers and their books and their materials and their conferences, etc.? Now, I first want to say that if people at your church are constantly talking about false teachers and false doctrine, and this has been going on for a long time, and your pastor either isn't preaching them, uh, preaching and teaching them uh, in such a way that this is being corrected, or if you've talked to your pastor about it and he doesn't see anything wrong with the false teachers or doctrines, you need to find yourself a new doctrinally sound church pronto. And we'll put my church finder resource in the show notes so that you can do that. But if these instances of false teachers and false doctrine seem to be only occasional and they're diminishing under your pastor's good teaching, here's what I would do. I would advise saving your response of, oh goodness, I'm afraid she's a false teacher, you know, for the most urgent times. Like when the women's director tells you that she wants to take the ladies to a Joyce Meyer conference or, you know, a friend, a friend asks you what you think of the Beth Moore book she's reading. You know, if you're walking down the hall at church and there's a group of people talking and you happen to overhear John Piper's name come up in a conversation, there's no need to just bust in there and tell them how much you disagree with his continuationist views. 
Because when you tell those people that someone is a false teacher, and I'm not saying that John Piper is necessarily, but when you tell anyone at your church that someone that they really like is a false teacher, most of them are going to respond like those idol worshipers in the Judges 6 passage I just told you about, or like, you know, Amy's first response, they're going to be mad. They are going to think of you as, and probably call you, the Christian legalistic police, no matter how gentle and kind you are. It's it's going to happen, and it's going to get worse as time goes by. And ladies, what we have to do is wrap our minds around that and accept that as normal for doctrinally sound Christians to face. And we've got to be ready to respond to it biblically rather than trying to find some elusive, non-offensive way to do it where everybody still thinks you're awesome. Idol worshipers get offended when you topple their idol. People will get mad at you. People will be ugly to you. People will sever their relationships with you. And you know what? You're not going to die from that, okay? It's going to hurt, but Jesus is worth it. Warning that person is worth it. Fearing God and obeying Him instead of fearing man is worth it. Amy, what would you like to add to that? Well, I think just the general encouragement I can give to our listeners that Michelle and I have been there. Um, we've been there more than once. Uh, many of our friends have been there. It's, it's, it's a tough position to be in, but you're right, Michelle. Uh, Jesus is worth it. The truth is worth it. And the Bible tells us to contend for the truth. Uh, we, and we've done this before. We've, we've talked about, you know, our tone, um, doing it in love and we do it because of love. And, and that's why, uh, we want to do that. We don't, uh, warn people because, you know, oh, we want to be right. We want to be seen as the expert, you know, of all things discernment. Of course not. And uh, and we've known people who, of course, uh, have had that attitude, and that's sinful as well. It shouldn't be about us ever. It should be about the truth of Christ. And so I guess that's the encouragement that I would give as well. I'm echoing what uh, Michelle has said. It, it's it's something that we all go through, and you're not alone. You really aren't. So uh, So take heart. All right. Well, why don't we go to our next question, Michelle? Uh, This one comes from an anonymous friend of ours on Instagram who asks this. Uh, There have been quite a few concerning things being taught at our church over the past year, with one of the major things being the promotion of contemplative spirituality, uh, teachings from Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, Ruth Haley Barton, John Mark Corner, and the classics on breath prayer, listening prayer, imagination or imaginative prayer, that kind of thing, um, and those kind of classes or teachings. Um, and she writes, months ago, I spoke to a few of our elders about it, and they agreed that I made some good points, but they're mostly unconcerned. I've been doing a lot of research because of how much these teachings are bothering me, and I've put together a document where I've been keeping track of what I'm noticing and learning. I have a section on each individual who's been quoted at church, along with highlights of their questionable teachings and how they intersect with one another, as well as information on the overall contemplative spirituality movement. My question is, would it be okay to share my research with a few of my friends from church to give them a clearer picture of how deep this all goes so that they're aware? You know, we've we've talked about this, but not a lot in detail. Or 
Would that be inappropriate in particular because my husband has thankfully agreed that we can now go ahead and find another church so we will no longer be there? Um, a, good for you for doing the research and sharing it with your elders, Anonymous. I don't know if your husband was around for those conversations. Uh, if not, that would have been even better. Uh, but two, good for your husband for leading you to a church where sound doctrine and avoiding false teachings and teachers matters. Both of those things go hand in hand, and you really can't have one without the other. So let's talk about uh, the concerns that you have about the contemplative spirituality movement. Now, a lot of listeners might not have heard of this before, so uh, here is a brief recap. And by the way, Michelle and I did an entire episode on this idea of spiritual formation and contemplative prayer all the way back in 2021. I can't believe we've been doing this long. So, uh, But, but it's, we've got a lot of these programs, and we're going to share those in the show notes today. Spiritual formation, spiritual disciplines, you might have heard of contemplative prayer, those are all part of the same movement, which has some very unbiblical practices, unbiblical origins, an unbiblical view of man's human condition, and it also carries the risk of having spiritual experiences that are not from God. It's a movement that started about 40 years ago by Richard Foster, and he's the author of Celebration of Discipline, The Path to Spiritual Growth. That's a, a book that's been around for a long time, and it's uh, greatly influenced a lot of churches. Now, Foster recommended a set of disciplines that you must do in order to be in the presence of God. These disciplines are designed to help shape the character of the person into the likeness of Christ. Now, and that's, of course, what the Holy Spirit does, right? So, and of course, it all sounds like a really good thing. We all need to pray. We all need to read our Bibles. We all need to learn about God through scripture and sitting under sound preaching at your local church and so forth. Those are the spiritual disciplines the Bible prescribes for the life of the Christian. But listen, there is a huge difference between our Christian disciplines or practices and the way those things are taught in the spiritual formation model. Now, among the more concerning ones are meditation. And by the way, this is not meditating on God's word like we're supposed to do, but by entering into a listening silence in order to hear God's voice, you search from within yourself to receive impressions, which, by the way, is similar to the meditation of you know, Eastern religions or the New Age. And another one is um, the practice of contemplative prayer, not taking your petitions before the Lord and contemplating his goodness. Contemplative prayer is an interactive conversation with God. In other words, you've heard, oh, it's a two-way street. You know, you speak, uh, God listens, and then God speaks, and you listens, and blah, blah, blah. And if you've listened to our recent interview with Jim Osman, you know that God doesn't whisper. He has spoken to us through his breathed out word. So here's what Richard Foster says about meditation. Quote, meditation is the ability to hear God's voice and obey his word. Christian meditation allows for a precious space and time for a meeting between God, the lover, and we, the beloved. 
you. Uh, We can meet with God in ever-growing familiarity and intimacy, not because of any of our special abilities, but simply because we come willing to enter into a listening silence. It is a creation of space emotionally and spiritually in our often hectic and hurried world, allowing the creator of the universe to meet with us just as he met with Moses face-to-face as a friend. End quote. Okay, God didn't meet with Moses that way. And the Bible doesn't say that we are to have burning bush experiences with him. So what about the questionable origins of Richard Foster's contemplative prayer spiritual disciplines movement? Well, They are, so says Foster in his own words, derived from the practices of Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox mystics, the Desert Fathers, so to speak. You know, we don't follow Desert Fathers, those ancient monks. The only ancient fathers we listen to are the ones who long ago wrote as the Holy Spirit guided them. So question for you. Are we to turn to mystical, subjective practices and gut feelings, or do we rely upon the objective truth of God's Word? Well, no, we're not supposed to do the first thing. We're supposed to rely on God's Word, right? The Bible nowhere describes an inward journey to explore the realm of the Spirit. God chose to reveal the truth about spiritual reality through His ordained, Spirit-inspired biblical writers. And going into the silence is a new age mystical practice where you go into an altered state of consciousness. We did this in our Unitarian church when I was growing up, as I've shared before, and we went into this uh, transcendental meditation where you just empty your mind to transcend the here and now. You know, the Bible says we are to be sober-minded, not empty-headed. Another concern is that Foster and other teachers like Dallas Willard have written books that are widely used still in churches today that tell us that humankind is basically good. Well, the Bible says that no one is good. Our righteousness can come only from the finished work of Christ in his mercy, who took our own sin upon his shoulders at the cross. Now, ladies, I've only scratched the surface here about what this movement is about, but I encourage you just to go to our show notes and read all the articles we've posted there about this horrible movement. You can catch that podcast I spoke about, uh, Spiritual Formation, uh, that is leading so many people away from the truth. So, Anonymous, you asked if it was okay to share your research about this with your church friends. Yes, of course. Um, I just encourage that, but I, I would wait until they ask you why you are leaving. And this is kind of what Michelle spoke about before, and I'm using your wisdom here. State that maybe you have some concerns about the teachings and the teachers that have been introduced and mention that you spoke with your elders, but to no avail, and that you and your husband have agreed to amicably uh, part ways. And that see if they ask. And if they do, share your stuff. Absolutely. Email it to them. But then if they don't ask you, you might even want to dip your toe in just a little bit and say, hey, you know, if you're interested, I'm happy to share what I've learned and what we've shared with the elders. If you would like, I can email it to you. And if they say, nah, 
no thanks. And then you could say, well, okay, here it is. If you want it, you know where I am. And, uh, you know, sometimes, like Michelle said earlier, they're going to think about it. And uh, perhaps they'll even come around wanting to know a little bit more. So leave it in God's hands. Remember, we're not the Holy Spirit. uh, But all we can do is try, right? Anything to add, Michelle? I think that's exactly the way that that you should handle leaving the church and and informing your friends. Um, I've written an article called How to Leave a Church, and we're going to to, um, put that in the show notes for you. And it it really goes along the lines of what Amy just said. you don't want to make a big stink as you're, as you're leaving your church, you know, especially if it's not necessary and it's not necessary in this situation. Uh, but you do want to tell your friends goodbye. I mean, you don't want to just ghost them, you know, you want to tell them you're leaving and, uh, you know, you can tell them why and just don't make a huge big explosion about it, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, I would, yes. I would say that I would also say agree, agree with you to, um, that our, listeners should go listen to that episode that we recorded because um, what you've taught here is excellent. And you added a lot to that particular episode too uh, of research that you've done. And it was really, really good. So uh, they can learn a lot further about spiritual formation from that. And then just one more thing, uh, just a plea to uh, our pastor friends and our church friends. Um, If you're in charge of the discipleship ministry at your church, I know it's it's tempting to call things, you know, new and trendy titles, but don't call your disciple your your doctrinally sound discipleship program. Don't call it spiritual formation. There are some churches out there who do that and yeah. they they don't mean all this Dallas Willard stuff. What they mean is, you know, Bible study and prayer and, you know, doctrinally sound stuff. So just right. call it discipleship or maybe Christian disciplines or I don't know, something, but don't call it spiritual formation because that's confusing. All righty. Our next yeah. question comes from Tamai at our uh, Award Fitly Spoken Facebook page. And she asks, what are examples of prescriptive texts versus descriptive texts? And she's talking about- Oh, I like that. Yeah. yeah. She's talking about texts of scripture. So let's start off the way that we always like to start off when we're talking about something like this by defining our terms. Now, broadly speaking, there are two main types of scripture, descriptive scripture and prescriptive scripture. Descriptive passages just describe something that happened. Their narrative, Noah built an ark, Esther became queen, Paul got shipwrecked. These passages just simply tell us what happened to somebody. Prescriptive passages are commands or statements to obey. Don't lie. Share the gospel. Forgive others. Things like that. And we learn from both kinds of passages, but we learn from them in different ways. For example, if we wanted to learn how to have a godly marriage, we would look at prescriptive passages like Ephesians 5.22 through 33. And of course, that's the passage that talks about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives respect and submit to your husbands. We'd look at 1 Corinthians 7, which talks about, you know, not depriving one another, uh, don't get divorced and things like that. We would look at Exodus 20, you know, the Ten Commandments, don't commit adultery, don't covet your neighbor's wife. These are all passages that clearly tell us what to do and what not to do in order to have a godly marriage. 
What we would not do if we wanted to learn how to have a godly marriage is that we would not read the stories, the descriptive passages about, for example, David's and Solomon's lives and conclude that polygamy is God's design for marriage. We would not read about Hosea and assume that from his story that God wants Christian men to marry prostitutes or women who are prone to adultery. Uh, We would not read the story of the woman at the well and think that being married five times and then shacking up with number six is okay with Jesus. Descriptive passages can support but never trump God's commands in prescriptive passages. We always have to evaluate descriptive passages in light of prescriptive passages. Amy, anything you'd like to add? Michelle, that was so great. And um, it, it's so necessary that uh, all of our listeners understand the difference between prescriptive and descriptive passages if you want to be wise and discerning when looking at scripture. It's just, uh, it's fundamental to how we understand uh, God's word because you are right. If, if you're looking at descriptive passages and making them commands that we must follow, uh, then you will be in a whole world of hurt as far as being deceived. So really, appreciate that question and your answer, Michelle. All right, we've got another question here. We're going to go to our Facebook page at A Word Fitly Spoken, and this one is from Ellie, and she asks this question. A friend's husband participates in a Bible study at work with others from many denominations, Catholic, Lutheran, Baptist, United Reformed, RCA, non-denominational, and many others. How could he properly study the truth with so many different views? Well, Ellie, that's a great question. And the short answer is, because he's not studying their views, he's studying God's views in God's word, not from other books or other churches or unsound pastors. Now, I and I that's a short answer. I hope you didn't think that was too glib, but I have a, a couple of caveats here that I'm just going to throw in, some questions. Who is teaching or leading this class and how are they teaching? Are they opening up God's word and looking at what it says and to whom it was said? Or are they going around the circle asking, what do you think this means to you? Well, that would be the wrong way to study. It doesn't matter what the passage means to me. It matters who the author is, the intended audience, and what the author wanted to say to that audience to know about God. What does this passage say? What do the before and after passages say so that we can see it in this context? And another question that I would ask is, are there any ground rules in this study? Like, uh, you know, hey, everybody, we're just studying the text, not other commentaries. Uh, we're not bringing other book authors and the like into this conversation, you know, things like that. Those are some good ground rules to have. And then my final question would be, how strong in faith is your friend's husband? Is he likely to be swayed by the opinions of others? Or could he possibly be there as a vessel of truth for other participants who perhaps are sitting under false teaching in their home churches? Or maybe they're new to the faith and and he's got some wisdom to share from the actual word of God. So Ellie, you asked me how a man can properly study truth with so many different views. And I, I hope that answered the question. But we also have a good resource for you, a podcast episode series Michelle and I did on differing Christian views that really aren't necessarily unbiblical, just different. And these are called doctrinal distinctives. And we did this three-part series titled 
Who do you think you are? Kind of a fun title. Who do you think you are? Uh, and that was in which uh, Michelle and I discuss our, our own doctrinal distinctives that we have. And by the way, we all have them. Everybody has doctrinal distinctives. So go ahead and catch that podcast series. We'll put that uh, in our show notes today. What do you think, Michelle? Any thoughts? Any different advice you might think of? No, I think that's great advice. I I would be surprised if all of those people can sit in a Bible study together and um, be agreeable enough to all stay in that Bible study together. I know I would have I would have some difficulties if you know there were Catholics in there and they were saying, "Oh, this verse means works righteousness, and this verse means that we pray for the dead, and this verse means or not pray for the dead, but." Um, you know, the talk about purgatory and things like that. Praying for the dead as Mormons, I forgot. Um, but uh, yeah, I I would say that if if your husband, like Amy said, if he's very discerning and very strong in his faith, maybe he can go in there and he would be a good influence and he would bring, um, you know, the gospel to bear on what, you know, whatever the discussion is. But if he is someone who is easily swayed, if he's if you're not sure if he's actually a Christian or not, uh, that probably wouldn't be a very good place for him. He would need to be in in a uh, unified, doctrinally sound church and maybe a Bible study at his church or something like that. She says that's a friend's husband. So she may not be too sure about his uh, spiritual state or she may be, I don't know. But uh, yeah, that's, those are the only thoughts that I would add. Just uh, be really careful. Um, you, ec- ecumenism like that, just uh, it's often not a very good idea. Um, it's, it's probably not something that I would do. And probably for most people, unless they're really strong in the faith and really discerning and have the freedom to refute any false doctrine that comes up um, for people that are not like that, I would probably suggest they not go to something like that. So, yeah. And I would just add too, I, I'm not in favor of mixers in ministry and in churches and inviting, you know, all sorts of folks to, uh, you know, with different belief systems to study in a church, uh, official Bible study. And, uh, I, I think the exception I would make is at a workplace like this, that that's not mm-hmm. church. That's something that, you know, right. Hey, we're doing this thing. Um, I probably would go. Yeah. <laughs> just. Yeah, just because you've got and and you know I and I know what I believe and what Scripture says, so um, I, I would probably be that uh, that little stone in somebody's shoe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I might cause people to leave if I bring up too much Scripture, right? So I'm anyway. sure I would cause people to leave. <laughs> but you know what? It, a lot of it. Now that I think about it, a lot of it really depends on the personalities of the people who are involved, too. You know, if the right. people, the leaders, for sure. Yeah, the yeah. leaders for sure. But then also the participants as well. You know, if you're if you're Lutheran and you're Baptist and um, you're Reformed people and they're, they're, they're the strong personalities and they're the ones who always contribute to the conversation or whatever, it could be good for that Catholic person to be in there because he could hear the gospel right. and get saved. So a lot of it depends wow. on, you know, interpersonal dynamics, too, um, as to whether, you know, it's a good idea or not a good idea. So. <laughs> yeah. All righty. Yeah. And remember, you have to work with these people, too. So, yes, <laughs> be that's, careful. you know, that's absolutely <laughs> true. That is something to take into account. So, 
for me. Yes. It might cause too many problems in the workplace if I participate in that study, <laughs> but you never know. So just use wisdom. Maybe ask your yeah. pastor if that's a good idea or not. So Ah, good idea. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, next up, we've got a question from Kathy at our Award Fitly Spoken pa- Facebook page. And she says, please explain the term deaconess and share your thoughts on women serving in this role. Hmm. So, Kathy, I'm excerpting my answer to you from my blog article titled Deaconesses and Female Deacons, which we've linked in the show notes. And it's much more extensive than my answer here. So I commend it to you or any of the other listeners if you'd like to learn more. Deaconess is our English word for a female deacon. And we find the English word deacon itself in only two passages in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, where God spells out the biblical qualifications for deacons. And then in Philippians 1, 1, which is Paul's greeting to, quote, all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Also, although the English word deacon isn't used in this passage, most theologians consider Acts 6, 1 through 6 to be a description of the appointment of the first deacons in the New Testament church. The Greek word diakonos, or deacon, which is used or implied in all of these passages that I just listed, it just simply means servant and a waiter at table or in other menial duties. It comes from uh, the root word diako. I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing those right because I haven't ever taken Greek. Uh, <laughs> but that that word means to run on errands. And I'm sure most of our, our uh, lady listeners are familiar with running errands. So this is not a position of <laughs> teaching or authority. It's a position of humility and anonymity and servanthood. The first seven deacons in Acts waited on tables, providing food for the church's widows. They weren't teaching or exercising any sort of authority. Most churches would basically be in agreement with all of this, at least on paper, up to this point. Where we start to diverge is how does this flesh itself out in practice in the local church body? The three basic perspectives that I have run across are, number one, the egalitarian sort of anything boys can do, girls can do perspective. And we're going to go ahead and dispense with that right now. Um, Egalitarianism is unbiblical. So whatever their perspective on deaconesses is, is unbiblical. So, um, you know, the, the attitude that men and women are the same, they can do the same thing in the church, that including being deacons. We're just going to go ahead and put that to the side right now because that's not biblical. All right. The second one is what I would call, there's not really any names for these perspectives, so I just had to call them something. But this is this one is what I would call the traditional Southern Baptist perspective. And that would say that the office of deacon exists and it is restricted to men. Deacons have to meet all of the biblical qualifications for the office, and they are set apart to the diaconate by way of the ordination process, which involves nomination, examination, voting, and then the laying on of hands. Uh, In this perspective, there is no category of deaconess. All Christians are expected to be servants. And personally, this is the perspective that I hold to, and not just because I'm a Southern Baptist, and we'll talk about that in just a second. And then finally, there's the what I would call the everybody's a deacon perspective that a number of Reformed and uh, Baptistic churches hold to. 
Uh, and they would say that because diakonos means servant and all Christians are to be servants, then all Christians who serve in some way are deacons. There's no office, position, or official title of deacon. And so that's how they would look at it. And it's my understanding that John MacArthur's church holds to this paradigm. Okay. And then there are sort of blendings or hybrids of these two positions. And usually what happens there is that the women who are serving as deaconesses, uh, usually they're ministering to the needs of women and children. Um, Personally, I don't have any problem with the everybody's a deacon or hybrid paradigms. I just think that scripture more strongly supports what I described as the traditional Southern Baptist approach. And here's why. And if you'd like to, ladies, to kind of follow along with what I'm about to say, uh, get out your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy 2.11 through 3.13. 1 Timothy 2.11 through 3.13. All right. Now, as you're looking at that passage, you'll want to mentally take out the chapter and verse markings and just look at 1 Timothy 2.11 through 3.13 as one long, continuous stream of thought as it was originally written. The passage starts off by describing who is not qualified for the offices of elder and deacon, women, and why, followed by who is qualified for these offices, men, and how. The word likewise in chapter 3, verse 8, indicates that verses 8 through 13, the qualifications for the office of deacon, are part of the same line of thought as uh, chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 7. So that's the first reason. Next, the word likewise in chapter 3, verse 8 also indicates the similarity of the qualifications for deacon to the form and content of the qualifications for pastor and elder. There's no transition or contrast between the two passages that's indicating that pastor and elder is a set-apart office for qualified men only in 1 through 7, but that deacon is not a set-apart office for qualified men only in 8 through 13. In fact, the word likewise would seem to indicate to the contrary, that they are both set apart offices of the church for qualified men only. Okay, next, chapter three speaks of deacons as husbands with wives, indicating that deacons are men. If Paul meant that women were qualified for the office of deacon, there is a way to make that clear in Greek. So if he meant that women could be deacons, why not make that crystal clear in chapter three, verses eight through 13, since he just basically said the same things about elders being the husbands of one wife in chapter three, verses two through five. And we certainly use that husband husband of one wife designation for elders to help our argument that only men can be pastors and elders, don't we? So the next point, I think that uh, the preponderance of evidence points to the seven men of Acts 6 being deacons, or at least the president for, for deacons. They were a group of men set apart to serve. No women were appointed. And this was the example that was later codified and explained in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. And finally, to say that all Christians are to serve, therefore all Christians are deacon, is really, it's it's imprecise and it's confusing. All Christians are also to share the gospel. I mean, should we therefore say that all Christians are evangelists in the Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 sense? So it just, it's kind of confusing to talk about it that way. So deaconesses. Certainly, it's biblically right and good for women, 
individually or as a set-aside group, titled or untitled, to act as servants, to, to care for widows, to run errands, wait tables, carry out menial tasks in service to their brothers and sisters in Christ. We see Paul commending Phoebe and the other women of Romans 16 for doing these very sorts of things. In fact, most Christian women who are faithful church members are already doing things like that. The Bible says serve one another. So every Christian ought to be serving the church in some way. Amy, anything to add? No, I think you captured that really well. And uh, I remember reading your article on uh, the deaconesses uh, a long time ago, and I need to go get that. Uh, I know you're going to put that in the show notes. So uh, I'm going to go grab that and read it in its entirety. Again, it's a very interesting topic, and uh, I love hearing uh, the different viewpoints on that. Um, so I appreciate that. Thank you, Michelle. Um, yeah, I, and I, I always, uh, I, I had thought of the kind of the snarky, well, if everybody is a deaconess, then nobody is, or I'm just kidding, but. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's, it's good though to define words. I really appreciate that. All right, on to the next question. This one is also from someone who, uh, wants to be anonymous. And, uh, she writes this. Recently, I've seen some Christian YouTube videos that discuss how they gave up on secular holidays to celebrate God's holy days. Should Christians celebrate Jewish holidays? Why or why not? Thank you for your time, ladies. Well, Anonymous, you are certainly welcome. And, uh, you know, it's kind of funny, as we record this, and we are recording quite a bit a ways ahead uh, this month, but uh, we're just now um, coming off of Rosh Hashanah. It's uh, mid-September. And uh, first, it, it's what they call the high holidays. It's the very first of the holidays in their season. And it's also known as the Jewish New Year. And I didn't know this, it's also the anniversary of the creation of Adam and Eve. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, just as an <laughs> aside, <laughs> I, I yeah, I had to I had to just say that because you know, and I was listening to a talk show this morning in the car, and uh, a Jewish caller called in and was explaining the importance of forgiveness during Rosh Hashanah during their New Year for all the sins that you've committed against the other people the rest of the year. So interesting, just just during the New Year, I guess. No. <laughs> but uh, I thought that, anyway, there are so many Jewish holidays and feasts straight out of the Old Testament that had, you know, specific rules or commandments that we can read about, about how they must be observed, spelled out uh, right in the Old Testament law. And uh, these rules, by the way, required lots and lots of works to get it right. And uh, if you got it wrong, that you were in big trouble. And these included sacrifices and building temporary shelters, the foods you should and should not eat, and so on. Now, most of those rules are not enforced today, and Jewish families tend toward the more celebratory aspects of their observances, kind of the food mostly. But uh, remember, ladies, we are not under the law. Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law. And uh, if you think that certain requirements of the law still apply to Christians today, then it's very likely that you might have a misunderstanding of our salvation through Christ Jesus. There is a movement out there called the Jewish Roots Movement, where many Christians are advocating that we all must go back to Old Testament laws and practices as requirements. And if you don't agree with them, then you are not a truly saved Christian. And I've known quite a few people now who have been bamboo 
bamboozled by this movement. They're very nasty if you don't agree with them. Um, you know, and it's the teachers of this are extremely intelligent people, usually with the title of rabbi, and they know their Bible and Old Testament law, so they are very uh, convincing. So should we celebrate Jewish holidays? Well, no, we're not Jewish, but can we? Sure, as long as we know that Christ fulfilled these requirements spelled out in uh, you know, the traditional ordinances, and we'd be doing it to learn histories or something like that, or just you know, enjoy celebrating as a memorial of what Christ did for us, but not as a requirement for the merit of God's grace. We do have freedom to celebrate, right? Just as we have the freedom to give up secular holidays if we want to. Colossians 2.16 says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And Romans 14.5 says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Any thoughts, Michelle, on on this question of whether we should celebrate Jewish holidays? Well, I completely agree with you, Amy. And I I think it's important that you brought out the history aspect of it. I think, um, you know, a lot of churches will around Easter time, they'll have a recreation of the Passover. And if you do that right yeah. and biblically and according to how it was done back in uh, in biblical times, that can be a very educational experience and, and it helps you to mm-hmm. understand what scripture says a little bit more. And same thing you could do with uh, the Feast of Booths or, you know, any of the other uh, Old Testament feasts and festivals, just to help you understand it a little bit better and wrap your mind around it a little bit better, as long as it's done according to scripture and according to, you know, the the period of the time when it was done in scripture to make sure you get it accurate. I think that could be a great yeah. learning experience. I also agree completely with what you said about be really careful about all these people who are saying that we have to go back and and you know, that you have to celebrate the feasts and the festivals because a lot of them probably are associated in some way with the Hebrew roots movement. So be really careful of that Mm -hmm. because that is completely unbiblical. And then I would just say, you know, think about it like this. Imagine that you are going to take a family trip to the the Grand Canyon. You know, you've always wanted to go there. It's really exciting. You can't wait to see the beauty of the Grand Canyon. And so in order to get there, now this is going to sound really antiquated, but you buy a really beautiful roadmap. And it's, it's on, you know, it's on parchment. It's got beautiful artwork. It's got, you know, it's just lovely. And so you follow this roadmap from your home to the Grand Canyon, when you get to the Grand Canyon, are you going to stand there and look at how beautiful that road map is? Or are you going to look at the Grand Canyon ah. and celebrate the Grand Canyon? Okay. It's the same thing. The the All of the Old yeah. Testament feasts and festivals, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, all of that pointed ahead to Jesus. And they were beautiful. They were beautiful uh, ceremonies and sacrifices and feasts and festivals, and they were very meaningful. But we don't 
focus on the roadmap. We focus on the destination and the destination is Christ. And that's what we need to be looking at is Christ. And Christ came to set us free from the law and to fulfill the law. So, yeah, if you want to look at those, look back at some of those things and do a recreation or learn about how they did it in the Old Testament, I always find things like that fascinating. And they really help me to understand the culture and the time and maybe why people did things the way they did things back then. So if that's your reason for wanting to do it, Mm -hmm. go ahead and do that. That's that's great. But if somebody is telling you that you have to do that, that's just wrong. And the New Testament has already dealt with that issue. So just go to, I think it's Galatians, you know, and and read about why we don't have to do that kind of thing anymore. So that would be my take on it. Right. Especially that, uh, yeah, especially that circumcision thing. We, yes. we don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> that's right. And that's going to wrap things up for this Uh, Glad you asked episode of A Word Fitly Spoken. Thank you so much for sending in your questions, listeners. And before we go, we want to say a special thank you to Eric, who sent us a generous donation and some very kind words on behalf of his wife. Isn't that sweet? Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Yeah. And thank you to all of our patrons on Patreon who donate on a monthly basis and also to all of our PayPal donors as well. We really appreciate all of you so much. A word fitly spoken literally would not be here if it weren't for you. That is so true, Michelle. And if you'd like to help us defray our podcasting costs via PayPal, like Eric did, or if you'd just like to become a patron on Patreon, just visit a wordfitlyspoken.life and click our support tab. And while you're there, be sure to check out all of our other resources as well. And until next time, be sure to get the answers to all of life's questions from the Bible and walk worthy. 